You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. That the king of a third world country runs around in a bulletproof cat suit. Why don't you ask him yourself? Because he's right outside. <laughs> Bingo. My king. Stop it. The Black Panther leaves. He's coming. That damn car. Watch me do my I hope you're ready, bro. I'm just getting started. Let's have some fun. You show off. I want your weapons. Secrets. It's all mine now. Is this your king? This ends today. everybody and welcome once again to GeekFest Rant. My name is Carlos Perone and today we have a pair of movie reviews that we're going to be bringing you. One of them is Marvel's Black Panther and the other one is Annihilation. Here we have two different, completely different films. Very genre-themed storylines here. As usual, you know, we're going to have very, very spoilery territory that we're going to cover with Black Panther, the latest and greatest of Marvel. And this one is a super bona fide hit. As of now, I believe it's already past the billion dollar mark. So this is a definitely very successful Marvel film and a wonderful entry into all of these different types of Marvel films that we're going to talk about. And a somewhat controversial film also uh, based on some of the different reaction that people are having to it. Overall, very positive. Then we have Annihilation, a what I would consider to be a very heavy, heavy sci-fi theme film again differences of opinions all over the place a film that you really have to think about deeply deeply think about about the meaning especially of the ending but nonetheless another great entry into sci-fi territory so let's begin right now with black panther what did i teach you you are the duke of new york you're a number one you will not laugh you will not cry you will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That horn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The force will be with you, always. 
Black Panther is the latest and greatest, you know, of all the uh, Marvel films that have come out. Uh, it is one of the last ones, I believe, of the Phase 3 portion of Marvel. This is one that I remember when they first announced the entire film slate, it was one of those like, wow, and in the future we have Black Panther. And back then I wasn't really that aware of, I mean, I kind of thought I knew what he was, but not being, you know, the, the comic book geek that I am not, as opposed to a film geek or television geek. You know, it was one that I had to get schooled on more or less, you know, and as time went on, I started to learn more and more about this character. However, we did get a sneak peek of him in previous uh, Marvel films as they portray, for example, in Civil War, we get to see how his father is killed, you know, the, the lead character, you know, for Black Panther, and how he now kind of has to take on the mantle of being the Black Panther. And we then see him in action as he's trying to track down the killer you know, unbeknownst to everybody, it is not Bucky. You know, that's part of the mystery of uh, of Civil War. Uh, so we did get a slight taste of him, you know, during the film. And in that big fight sequence in the, uh, I think it was like an airport, we, we got to see him a lot. But obviously, we didn't get the whole story. We, you know, we, we only got a taste of it, which is kind of neat how I think Marvel has been doing this, where... They can kind of tease a new character, you know, on a previous film, a little bit kind of like the stingers that they put, uh, you know, the multiple endings, uh, the, the little extra scenes uh, in, in a lot of their films. This is a great little device, plot device, to be able to plant that seed because you know it's going to flourish, you know, one or two films down the line. Black Panther, to me, was a very good Marvel film. I think I'm ranking it somewhere around second, I would say, favorite of the Marvel films. Now, you, you got to remember, whenever, you know, I think about comic book films, I have to do these subdivisions. <laughs> and, you know, I think about the, the, the old superhero films, and by that I'm talking about your Superman, you know, Superman, Christopher Reeve, Superman. I'm not even talking about black and white. I'm not even talking about, you know, the older, older serialized superhero material. I'm talking about something of my age. And Superman was the, the beginning, let's call it, the golden age for people our age of superhero films and that kind of time frame. On television, you had the Incredible Hulk and you had, you know, stuff like you, you did have a Spider-Man <laughs> a horrible show. Um, but uh, as far as film went, that was the, the, the thing. After Superman, the next big jump in superhero films, I would say, is Batman. Especially with Michael Keaton, you know, Tim Burton's Batman, the first couple of ones. Uh, obviously, they, you know, they did the franchise thing after that. And, okay, fine, no problem. Along the way, uh, after Batman, the next big thing was, I would imagine, X-Men. X-Men got, got us a little closer to more or less the style of where we're at now. And even though now we still have X-Men films and they've kind of handed off to a new generation of actors, you know, playing them younger and that sort of thing, it is still in that vein. You know, through that, you get your Wolverines and, and you know, all those you get Logan, you know, the latest and greatest of the of the spinoffs of X-Men. Then there was Spider-Man by Sam Raimi that kind of brought it all back again. You know, another big, big hit starring Tobey Maguire. You know, this was another milestone in comic book films. And that was great. But we also have to remember that there were some 
mild hits, if you will. For example, around that time, you know, when, when X-Men first kind of started, we also had Blade. Blade was a comic book character that was more promoted, I think, as a horror adventure type of thing, but it is solidly based on a comic book character. Uh, granted, he is not a superhero, you know, gigantically known Superman, Batman level character, but you still had it. And, you know, along the way uh, around that time, you know, there were attempts to do a couple of uh, Hulk, you know, the, and there was Ang Lee's Hulk, and but now those were kind of bombs. So again, your, your, your big hitters were Christopher Reeve's Superman, Tim Burton's Batman, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, and the X-Men franchise. After that, after that was all said and done, what came next was what I would consider to be the modern era of comics. And that is where we are now. This is Marvel Studios I'm talking about. And a little after Marvel Studios, I'm talking about DC doing a formal, formal push forward with a lot of the DC material that we see now. However, DC, in a way, I believe, kind of beat Marvel to the punch in terms of being able to create one of the greatest, more modern versions of Batman with Christopher Nolan's Batman. Um, and specifically, in my personal opinion, The Dark Knight, the second film. They were unfortunately not able to continue, you know, with the success or the volume, more like it, that Marvel has. But to me, as far as modern times, you know, of comic book films, to me, The Dark Knight is still the best overall superhero film ever. It hits the right chords with me, you know, because I like everything just a little darker. I like it a little more serious. I like it a little more gritty. And Dark Knight is just right there. I mean, the Joker is just a character that could be plucked into any crime series. <laughs> and he fits perfectly in the way that, you know, Christopher Nolan put it all together. Now, with Marvel... They had consistency. My God, did they have consistency. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but right off the bat, with Iron Man being able to introduce a B-level character, if you will. He's not A-slate material. A lot of people forget or don't even know who Iron Man was. And they were able to build him, you know, completely create him from scratch, more or less, because... You know, they, they had a, a pretty wide slate of how to approach this character. And that has given rise to the entire modern Marvel world. And that includes sequels to the individual characters created, like Thor, like Captain America. Characters that are a lot of B-level characters. Doctor Strange, Ant-Man, Black Panther, for example, you know. We have a lot more coming up. And then you have your team-ups, your Avenger films, where you kind of, you know, it's the free-for-all of all, everybody fighting in some shape or form. So, overall, one of the greatest assets of Marvel is that they've been able to kind of give you what everybody might want in terms of depending on your age and your interest. If you want classic superheroes, they can give you the classics. They can give you nowadays, especially uh, with the uh, collaboration with Sony, they can give you your Spider-Man. You know, they're able to include the Hulk, even though they haven't 
lately giving him his own film, but in the past there have been a couple of Hulk films. Your new headliners, you know, even though, like I said, Iron Man wasn't, you know, an A-tier character, but now you have Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, for example, and they then created their own, and I don't want to say created as if they invented them, but they kind of reintroduced their own B-level characters that little by little can become more individualized. Uh, Characters like Hawkeye and the Falcon and the Black Widow, you know, all these characters that are kind of put into the B side of the modern slate, but they do create their own little, you know, tiers of characters that they can then pick and choose and bring to other places. So what they did with Marvel, like I said, that's really incredible and, and very productive and smart is that they've given you everything you could possibly want for comics. So, for example, if you're into classical comic storylines of how classic comics behave, if you will, you have your Spider-Man, you have your, you know, your Captain America, your, even your Iron Man, you know, that's your classical kind of uh, behavior, I guess, if you will, for, for, for comics. Now, if you like yours a little more realistic, which is my particular bend on things, you have your Captain America Winter Soldier, or even your Civil War. That's where it gets a little more serious. In my opinion, it gets more towards the the Dark Knights, you know, DC's Dark Knight level of, of storytelling. And that's where I find my favorite of my of the Marvel films. To me, Winter Soldier is the best one. And it is because I have my own personal reasons for it. You know, because I'm not a comic book person, per se, I like that 70s conspiracy theory, political intrigue, government turning on people kind of plot. You know, that that uh, all the president's men, the uh, parallax view. You know, I've talked about this before when I actually reviewed the film a very long time ago. And to me, it worked great. The cast was great. You know, you throw Robert Redford in there and there's such a pedigree of oh my god this guy is perfect frank grillo i mean i've learned to love this actor throughout the years now all the different roles he's played he was so good in this one so to me that is the the best of the marvel films up to to, you know to this date so you do have that category now you want to go into the fantastical you know otherworldly other realm type of side of of marvel then then you have your thor then you have a, a little bit of, of, let's say, Guardians of the Galaxy, even though Guardians splinters into even another direction. So uh, you also have Doctor Strange. You know, that's when things get fantastical, let's say, for in terms of powers. Then if you want to go in a more young, family-friendly direction, there's your, again, here's your Guardians of the Galaxy. Here's your Ant-Man. You know, even Spider-Man, to a certain extent, you could say, goes in that direction. They're a little lighter, a little fluffier. <laughs> they're still fun, but they kind of pack on the jokes a little more, and they're more family-friendly than the other ones. So that is one of the best things, I think, that Marvel has been able to do, is to be able to sprinkle all along the way all these different you know, markets or target markets that they want to hit. You want to hit the younger kids. You want to hit the adults. You want to hit the comic book geek. You know, they they, they kind of were able to kind of throw it all around like that, which is really, really smart. So where does Black Panther fit into this? Well, 
Black Panther is an interesting one because, as I said before, during Civil War, we already got a taste of what Black Panther, you know, was going to be like a little bit. And yeah, I would, I would go as far as to say that even the storyline for Black Panther might fall, I'd say it falls somewhere between the serious, gritty, and the fantastical. It doesn't fall under the, the kitty side. You know, it's no Guardians, it's no Ant-Man, that's for sure. With this particular story, you're giving the full story of who the current Black Panther is. We understand that there have been many Black Panthers. In the opening shot of the film, you get this whole history lesson of, you know, uh, everything having to do with how that country was formed and the discovery of of the special, you know, material that, you know, very strong material. Out of That's what they make Captain America's shield out of. And... You know, we're given the fact, you know, we're, we're presented with the, the history of how this country has remained hidden for all these years while, while wars were being waged, you know, the slaves were being brought to the uh, new world and all that stuff. They were hidden, completely hidden. And now they're at a point where something's about to happen. So we have the new leader now who is formally going to be introduced or crowned if you will as king of wakanda and you know we we get to see this kind of like a it's a like a spiritual thing where uh, this process where he kind kind of gets to meet his ancestors you know that they have all passed already as he gets his black panther powers which is something that is given to a person so it's it's interesting it's not a uh, you know the spider bit me it's a drug Basically, it's a flower that you drink and it gives you those powers. So we are introduced with that world. And in that world, we already understand because he's kind of been doing it already. I, again, we've seen it in Civil War. But in that world, we understand that he's already quietly going on missions and, and saving people and that sort of thing. But they're still keeping it quiet. They want to remain quiet. They don't want to get involved with the outside world. And we're introduced or reintroduced uh, to Claw, which is the, the from what I understand, the, the classic bad guy for Black Panther. And he is still trying to get his hands into Wakanda. He still wants to find, you know, get the riches from there. And he recruits, uh, more or less, uh, uh, this guy who seems to know something about Wakanda. And then later in the movie, we, and again, this is Spoiler filled. I always mentioned it. I try to remember. <laughs> We're going to spoil it a lot. We meet the the new lead bad guy, Killmonger. His character is somebody who grew up in the United States, uh, you know, through the '90s and the 2000s, you know, through that time, and he is the son of somebody who was sent to the United States to kind of. Keep an eye on things because they apparently have like spies everywhere watching the world function and how they're progressing to kind of be able to tell what's happening outside of their enclosed country. And something happened at one point where one of these guys that was out there exploring, he was now getting involved in actual, you know, violent actions and gun dealing and that sort of thing because he was so affected by the struggle now again let's keep in mind this guy is living in like south central so he's being affected by everything that's happening racially in the 90s let's say in south central los angeles and he is ready to take up arms against people that are oppressing him let's say so 
before he can do any of this, the, the king of Wakanda comes down and says, you know, I'm very disappointed at you. I'm going to bring you back. You know, it's over. You disappointed me. You know, you're not supposed to get involved. You're supposed to just watch things. So that kind of ends. And we're back to this whole thing of, well, who's this other guy? There's another guy now involved. What is his connection to any of this? We don't know at the point. So this guy finally manages to come to Wakanda, the Killmonger, and he challenges T'Challa, who is the, the, the new king, uh, for the throne and beats him at his own game. They both have this fight without powers. T'Challa has no powers. This guy has no powers. It's just a brute strength. And he beats him. He kind of throws him over a cliff, presumed dead, and he takes over. He's the new king. He's giving the powers of the Black Panther. And now he's kind of like, that's it. We're coming out. <laughs> We're going to unveil ourselves. We're going to take over the world. We're more powerful than everybody. So this guy wants to just do the same thing that a lot of, I guess... A lot of people were already been doing historically to other people. So he wants to now do it to them. Through the movie, we then find out that this guy is the son of the guy that was caught trying to start some kind of revolution and that the king stopped him. But we also find out that as a result of that confrontation, that guy tried to attack either the king or the, or the other guy that was there. And as a result, the Black Panther had to kill him. So it was kind of like something that was unspoken, that he had to kill one of his own men to stop him from doing what he was going to do and from attacking. This guy, Killmonger, is the son of this guy. So Because we'd later see the scene a little more fully where the little kid goes in there and realizes that his father's been killed. Starts to understand the connection of his father coming from a different place. So he must be somehow connected to this different place. So now we get the vengeance part. And we get the vengeance and why he is so vengeful. The movie then goes through its usual tropes of, okay, the, he's got to redeem himself. He's got to get his strength back. He's got to get some powers back. He's got to get it all back. And you then have your final confrontation between your Black Panther and your Killmonger. And obviously, you know, Black Panther wins story is settled great what makes this story so different i think and more powerful is the fact that the bad guy is a sympathetic character so in other words he is not your mustache twirling evil doctor scientist <laughs> that you get in a lot of typical comic book characters you get a guy that is affected by his surroundings he is somebody who feels beaten and conquered in many different ways. And it is so reflective of society and the whole racial issues that are happening, that have been happening in the past and are happening today. The way that I saw the movie was that with Black Panther and Killmonger, you had the two sides or the two options of the most perceived, if you will, black struggle in terms of equality. One side saying, no, we have to do it peacefully. We have to do it somewhat by the law. And the other side saying, no, we've had enough of doing it peacefully. We have to do it violently. So it's a, it's a very um, dualistic, moralistic, if you will, struggle of how to get, how to achieve your goal. You can't really decide one or the other because historically, I think what they're doing is they're saying this guy is more kind of like Martin Luther King-ish and this guy is more 
kind of Malcolm X-ish. You have your historical divide. They're both trying to achieve somewhat the same outcome, but they're using different means. One is so consumed by rage that he cannot basically control himself at certain points. And there's a scene where he goes to see his ancestors, you know, like, you know, he takes the drug and, and he starts, and it is nothing like what the other guy is seeing. The other guy is seeing like his grandparents and all, this guy's only seeing his father and is very disappointed. You know, he's very regretful at everything that's happened. So it's not a, you know, his afterlife is not really giving him anything to look forward to, as opposed to T'Challa when he does it. You know, he it's it's a very peaceful, very um, godly kind of experience. So I would say that's one of the biggest things. Now, there's so many other cool things in this movie. The different tribes and their different the costume is costumes are amazing here. the The amount of color that is used, the rapport between T'Challa and his sister. She's like this little tech wizard, and it is so layered and constructed. Uh, like I said, I'm throwing it in the in that category of adult slash fantastical because the kind of technology that exists is really out of this world. I would go as far as to say that there might have been a little introduction in this kind of dichotomy of bad guy a little bit, I think, with Zemo during Civil War. Because in that particular film, we also have a character whose motivation is his anger at the collateral damage that was caused by the Avengers. And all the people that died twisted his mind and twisted his feelings into a vengeful person. In a way, this is kind of what we're getting with Killmonger, except that with him, it is more relevant to our world. It is more right there in your face. You see the anger, the rage. And what's interesting too, very interesting, is that with T'Challa, even though at the end he's able to defeat Killmonger and Killmonger is dying, he is willing to save him. And Killmonger does not want to be saved. He does not toss him aside as a typical bad guy, you know, your typical evil, twisted, you know, monster kind of guy. No, he still wants to heal him. And that's another point that was like, wow, that is really, really interesting how they, they don't push him aside. The reaction to this film has been all over the place. And expectedly, again, given the current situation, it seems to have taken certain routes among certain people. There was a preemptive I don't know if it was exactly a boycott, but a backlash of, oh, here we go. It's another one of these black movies with the black guys are all the good guys and so many of them. And why do they have to all be so, you know, it's like, oh, my God, please turn off Fox for five friggin minutes. It was the same thing similar to what happened with Force Awakens. Why do they have to be a woman? Why does it have to be a black? Why can't they just all be? No, 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 no. You know, you, you cannot... You cannot argue with that kind of thinking. You just can't. You just have to kind of move on and get out of the way because you can't get in the weeds with that sort of thing. There are people that are just looking for excuses to dump on something. And when they have this chip on their shoulder, this racial chip on their shoulder, which is really a political chip on their shoulder, it's whatever their politics tells them to do or say, you know they're going to attack this film even before they even watch a frame of it. On the other hand, you might have people, and I've read a couple of articles that are not 
happy with it because it's not strong enough to point out more racial inequalities and more racials, more racial subtext you could read into it that still makes it as if African Americans are being more docile to, you know, whatever group happens to be, you know, conquering them, you know, uh, on top of them and that sort of thing. So my answer to that kind of criticism is, you know, that the film doesn't go far enough in portraying the struggle. My answer to this is that, well, this isn't, you know, 12 Years a Slave. This is a comic book. So with a comic book, you can't go full 100% dramatic. This is entertainment. This is comes down to popcorn. This is a popcorn film. This isn't a film that is supposed to make you think and examine your life type of film. This is supposed to be mainly entertaining. Now, with that said, they are throwing a lot of very clear messages. But their number one agenda in this film is entertainment because you are dealing in a comic book world. There are plenty of films. If you want to get serious, super serious, there are plenty of films like that. There are, they're out there. You can see those films, but this film is trying to attract more people. It's trying to make it fun. It's trying to make it a comic book. If you get away from the comic book part of this, if you go way too serious, then the film fails because that's not the intent of this particular franchise. So, you have both extremes here. You have both extremes and and you have to kind of navigate away from those extremes and kind of hit it in the middle. Where do you have, where does this fit amongst all the other ones? And like I said before, to me, this is number two. Winter Soldier is still number one for me. I love it. This one is my second one because it starts to go in that darker direction of nitty, you know, gritty type of stuff. It has the fantastical elements and it's fresh. It's new. This isn't a sequel. This isn't a part two, part three. So it's a whole new world we're experiencing, and I love it. I can't wait for them to continue this storyline and learn more about this world, this country that's about to open up. Because by the end of the movie, and we kind of seen a little bit of it before in Civil War, the world is about to be introduced to Wakanda in some shape or form. And in some of the stingers in here, we get to see Bucky being rejuvenated he's doing rehab for you know the arm and all the things that happened to him during civil war and winter soldier so they're about to open this up into the whole marvel universe and this kind of technology that we really hadn't seen before could potentially change a lot of these future films Let's take a quick break now and listen to a little spot from our friends at IC Robots. If you're into anything having to do with retro, vintage toys and 80s shows and all kinds of 80s and 70s vintage retro kind of games, television, movies, all of that geek culture that we love here at GeekFest Rants, take a look. When you visit their site, they have a podcast called The Toys R Us Report, and we strongly recommend it. So have a listen. Tune in to the Toys R Us report for your weekly dose of pop culture talk that's out of this world. Movies, TV, toys, comics and more every Wednesday on the IC Robots radio network at icrobots.com. What are you waiting for? It's time to get down or come up. All right, we're back. Thank you guys from IC Robots. And let's continue with our show. Well, let's talk about our second movie now, Annihilation. This is a sci-fi flick that comes from director Alex Garland. 
and stars Natalie Portman. Alex Garland's uh, claim to fame, really, is uh, his previous film, Ex Machina, which I absolutely loved. Saw it on Blu-ray, I believe. Never saw it in the theater, but it got really good buzz after a while. So, or did I see it in the theater? (laughs) I don't remember. I might have seen it in the theater. No, I think I saw it on DVD. Anyhow, I absolutely loved Ex Machina. The director, it's funny, when I really love a film, I start looking for interviews online, on DVDs, bonus features, you know, anywhere. And this is a director that when you listen to his interviews, he always sounds like he's annoyed (laughs) at everybody. He's got this really weird, he is such a, I'm going to suspect here, I'm going to assume, this guy is very, very bright, and he is super, super focused on whatever it is that he's talking about. And he kind of mentions that in some of his interviews, that he obsesses over certain subjects, and that's how he picks, you know, what projects to work on or what things to write and that sort of thing, especially when he's doing the research for it. So whenever he's doing interviews for films, I feel really bad for the interviewers because he comes off sometimes really like somebody who is just so above whatever it is that you're asking them. And almost sometimes he kind of chuckles at the kind of questions he gets asked. So it's a little cringe. (laughs) I'm always cringing a little bit when I'm watching these interviews. You know, I'm looking for information from the director, uh, but it's like, oh God, don't ask him the wrong question or don't phrase the question the wrong way because he's not going to react well to it and he's not very good at covering up his feelings. (laughs) And I'm, I'm, I'm... You know, and I'm getting this, you know, when I'm looking for information on this particular film as to, you know, what does the ending mean and that kind of thing. And man, well, I don't think I have yet found a very good interview that digs really deep into some of the questions I have about this film. Most of the interviews that I've seen so far are the preliminary interviews, the ones that they do when people haven't even seen the movie first and they're talking about this movie that they're putting together, and they're very generic questions, so sooner or later I'm going to run into some good questions, but anyway, let me tell you about the film. Ex Machina, which was this previous film, was the one about, you know, sentient robots, that sort of thing, and it's a movie that's not very hard to understand, it's pretty straightforward, you know what's happening, you kind of make the connections at the end of the film, there's a slight little twist, if you will, but it's an understandable twist, and there's not too much interpretation going on as to what happened up to that point, you know, of the last shot of the film. Here it's a little different. This is a film that's based on a book, which is actually a trilogy of books, written by a completely different person than the director. This was written by Jeff Vandermeer, and it's a three-part book. But for this film, what Alex Garland did is he took the first book and adapted it you know, to to make a movie out of it so that it's all just one story, which he has no intention, as I've heard on on many interviews, of continuing because he just doesn't like doing that. He doesn't like doing sequels to anything or even his own films. So in this story, you have a situation where some kind of meteor or something out of from space crashes into a lighthouse somewhere possibly in the Florida Everglades area. As a result of this crash... This area starts to grow little by little around that lighthouse, creating a border that is referred to as the shimmer, this whatever engulfs this area. And as this area slowly starts to expand, the government sends in uh, military scientists, all kinds of people to investigate, and practically nobody seems to be able to come out of this area. They go in, but they don't come out. 
when they finally do get one person to come out of the area, uh, we find out about this because our protagonist, who is Natalie Portman, who is married to Oscar Isaac, he is the soldier that went on one of these missions, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, after he was thought to be dead, because he never came out, returns to his home. Now, the movie also is being told in different time periods, if you will. It jumps a lot in terms of the movie starts with Natalie Portman being interrogated in some kind of a medical government facility about what happened to her because she was apparently another person that was at some point went into this area and came out. So she's kind of telling the story of what happened with her particular mission inside this area. At the same time, through the story, we get flashbacks of her and her husband, of their relationship, of some of the issues that took place before getting into the area. Then the majority of the story, or what we're told in the, in, the, in the movie, takes place inside the Shimmer. You know, all these weird things that are happening inside and her team. And then at the end, we get a conclusion of her kind of putting an end to the story. Time-wise, more or less where we started, in that post-debriefing kind of area uh, that we are first introduced to her in the beginning. So, again, we know what the story is. We know the situation with this thing that's growing. Got it. We know that teams have gone in and out. Got it. We learn about her relationship with her husband and that, you know, they seemed like a very happy couple, but he has to go on this mission. You know, he, I don't know if you could say volunteers or it's part of his job because he's military. But uh, he ends up actually going a day earlier than expected. And, you know, she's not very happy about it, but he's out there, whatever. In the meantime, it looks like some of her friends, some of her colleagues from work, because she's a doctor, she's a scientist also. One of her friends is trying to encourage her, like, to come to a party or something. And he's kind of like, well, you know, it's been like a year or whatever. And, you know, he's not coming back. He's gone. And she's kind of still mourning him. And she's try and he's trying, and this guy's trying to encourage her, you know, come to the party, you know, kind of get back to life, you know, kind of thing. So... So that night, as she refused to go to the party, her husband shows up. But he is not very animated or very... Something's off with him. He doesn't seem to have any memory of anything that happened. The first thing he seems to remember is just the fact that he walked up the stairs to her house. And she offers him like a drink of water or something. He drinks and a little blood comes out. So at that point, we realize something's wrong with him. So we jump forward at some point to her being in a kind of like a hospital medical uh, environment type of place. She, he's being treated for whatever it is that's wrong with him. Something is happening to his body that is, is causing it to kind of break down, I guess, which is obviously something to do with whatever you know, mission he went on. And she is approached by another scientist in charge, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, to go in with another team of other scientists to go into the Shimmer and try to figure out what happened, try to get to the uh, lighthouse, because that seems to be the epicenter of whatever's going on. And she agrees to go in. And we meet all these different scientists. They're all women. We were told that I don't know how many missions went in and none of them have come out except for whatever weirdness is going on with her husband. And so they end up going in. And little by little, we kind of start finding out that all these different women, they're going in there for different reasons. In other words, they were not forced to go in. They're not the type of military people that are told just to go and do it, and they do it. But they all understand the fact that this thing is growing and growing, and nothing is stopping it. And sooner or later, it's going to <laughs> start hitting some major cities and overtake states and countries and possibly the whole world. It could completely engulf the Earth. So they all go in for different reasons. And as they're 
traveling through the shimmer, they start to notice all these weird things that are happening to the animals, to the flora, the fauna. Everything is being affected by it. The DNA is being changed on animals, on things, on plants. Everything is being affected. And they are slowly, kind of one by one, starting to get attacked by different animals that are really super mutated animals uh, that are just bizarre. The closer they get to the center, the more bizarre these things get. At one point, they're attacked by a like a crocodile, but the crocodile seems to have the formation of their teeth kind of like a shark. So it's kind of weird how they, they, these different kind of animals are being combined almost. At one point, they're attacked in this cabin by what looks like to be a bear, but the bear has kind of like a, like a skull for a head. And some of these scientists, they start to get picked off one by one. Going back to this bear bizarre thing, at one point, this bear is attacking them at night, and the sound it makes is basically the screams of the previous victim that the bear killed. So that is one of the creepy, there's many creepy scenes in this movie, one of the very creepy scenes where you hear these screech and wailing sounds coming out of this bear-like creature, but they're human screams. It's really bizarre. At one point, they also reach an area, like a building, let's say, that's being completely covered by vines and everything, because this... This is affecting everything. And they find that this is a place where her husband's team had stayed at during their mission. And they found a, a camera. And they're watching the videotape of what happened to apparently some of these people. Uh, they show that they're kind of restraining one of the soldiers. And the soldier is screaming because something is inside of him or whatever. And all of a sudden you see on the camera, they're pointing towards the guy's stomach. And you see something moving in there. And Oscar Isaac's character takes a knife and opens him up. And there's like a gigantic snake coiled inside this guy. And he's completely, you know, devastated. Later, they find that guy encrusted on the wall, kind of like becoming a part of the a tree or flowers or something. It's really bizarre what's happening to these people. The interesting thing is that it's not the same thing that's happening to all of them is the same. It's very different. Everything that happens seems to somehow be specific to their personality, to their DNA, to the individuality of that person. So they continue going forward. They've already lost at least two members. Uh, I think they lost, a, they lose a third one along the way. At some point, one of them turns on them because she's so paranoid that that they're all going to die, basically, that she kind of turns on them, and then that bear thing attacks and kills her, too. There's another girl that's there that she kind of starts to kind of give in to the... She kind of starts to understand that this is... You know, her particular point of view is that this is something that's happening that's going to be inevitable. So she, little by little, at first, but then very fast, starts to kind of turn into a tree. She starts to grow these vines out of her body. And next thing you know, we go see her, and there's this area where all these kind of human shapes of men, women, and even children made out of vines. So I think we're led to believe that these could have been or might have been people that were affected in that manner, just like this particular one. You know, her particular demise or her particular transformation had to do with her particular attitude. Earlier in the film, we also learned that everybody's there for a reason. Like I mentioned before, these are not soldiers, they're volunteers. So for them to come to, on this mission, they do mention the fact that it's a, is it a suicide mission? Well, it's not a suicide mission, but they're all there to prove something or because something really bad happened in their lives that makes them want to take this big risk. 
and they each had individual issues. Little by little, as she gets closer and closer to the lighthouse, and by this point there's only like one or two of them left, the team leader and her, uh, we, we also get more flashbacks of, of her life with her husband, and we find out that what was happening is that while her husband was away on other missions, she was having an affair with one of their friends. So this is an affair they try to, you know, they're keeping quiet, they don't want to open up about. But somehow her husband found out about it. And that is probably the reason, most likely, why her husband decided to go on this mission. It was kind of like a, a change in attitude that he had. Like at the last minute, he decided, I'm going a day early. I don't. I want to get out of here. Kind of attitude. So she has this guilt because she knows what she did. And she knows that her husband left, even though they never talked about it, her husband left abruptly and she she's carrying this guilt around about what she did. And, and the fact that her husband at that point was thought to be dead, but then obviously shows up, and but you don't understand, you know, we still don't understand what's going on. By the time we get to the lighthouse, things are really bizarre. All types of weird structures are being are popping out of the ground. There are these like crystalline trees and crystalline bushes, and you know, it, the lighthouse is it's, it's near the, the coast, obviously. And as we get in the lighthouse, we find the team leader, she is completely absorbed by something, and she seems to be channeling whatever it is that this life form is there for. She also had a background where we're told that she was dying of cancer, so she's another person that's coming on this mission with basically nothing to lose. So you start to see a pattern here of why these particular women are coming to this, the reaction, you know, the transformations that are taking place all have to do with, like I mentioned earlier, their particular situations and attitudes and personalities. This is the end of the film, and at the end of the film, it gets really, really sci-fi, super heavy. She seems to be able to somehow channel and explodes this being, this light, fire, I can't describe it. It's super heavy sci-fi creature, let's say. And this creature starts to kind of interact uh, with Natalie Portman's character, because she also reach, you know, she reaches that area, and... Part of this sequence uh, also has her discovering what appears to be on the floor somewhere a completely incinerated body of a man. And there's a lot of what could be soldiers, or at least their bodies, their bones, and maybe some of the gear that they left. So it looks as if her husband's team made it all the way to the lighthouse. And once again, she finds another camera depicting what happened at that last point. And what we see is that her husband's by himself, and he is completely kind of like lost his mind. He doesn't know what's happening. He, he He's trying to figure out a way of destroying this thing. And he takes a thermite grenade, which is this uh, grenade that just incinerates things and continues to burn uh, like uncontrollably for a very long time. And he takes it and kills himself in the process because he doesn't think he's going to be able to get out of there. However, even as he's killing himself... There's a secondary one of him, a second copy of him being created that comes out after he killed himself. So now she understands that the guy that's at home or the guy that's being treated, the guy that returned is probably not her husband. It's this secondary dual type of person that was generated, you know, around the time of his death. So she's afraid that this is going to happen to her. And in this really weird, freaky way, Whatever this creature is, it morphs itself 
into a, let's say, humanoid or a bipedal kind of creature, meaning two arms, two legs, and a head. Completely black with this weird, shimmery, shiny coat also to it. And this creature seems to be mimicking all her movements. Again, this is totally freaky, weird, weird, weird stuff out there. And the whole sequence is about how no matter what she does, this creature is doing the same thing. So she can't attack it because it attacks her the same way. She can't run away because she runs away in the same direction. So what she does is she somehow mimics another grenade being picked up and detonated. And in the process, the other creature does it too. But she, I think, gets away from it fast enough before the other creature can mimic getting away from it too. Thereby, this creature incinerating itself just like her husband did and her being the only survivor to be able to make it out of there as soon as this creature is incinerated things start to break down around them it seems as if the shimmer starts to come down and the crystalline trees start to crumble and all the things that were weird let's put it this way start to unweird themselves <laughs> and we're then back to the conclusion of the film now back to this medical center where you know she's continues her debriefing and you know she goes back to her husband and she even asks him you know are you all right or are you him you know she's trying to figure out because you know what she saw in the video is very different and i don't even know if she told them what she saw in the video and he basically tells her i don't know he doesn't know now, earlier in the film, she knows that she's being changed somehow, but she hasn't uh, mutated in the manner that the other women are mutating, or as fast as they're mutating. She still doesn't have the symptoms, but she, by testing her blood, she could tell that something is in her, just like in everybody else that goes into this area. So at the end of the film, the film ends with both of them hugging, and his eyes show this little yellow gold, let's call it a shimmer, and her eyes show the same thing. Which means what? We don't know. And that's where we're at with this movie. I saw this movie with my wife. She overall liked the movie, but then didn't like it because of the ending. The ending, that third act, once we get to the lighthouse, really whacked her out in terms of now the whole story just goes out the window completely. I had to think about it for a long time. I had to do some research. I had to look for explanations to the ending. And that is something that could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. When you have a film that leaves it wide open at the end. Where do we draw the line between bad storytelling, in other words, not giving your audience enough, and being artsy and saying it's open for interpretation? You know, wh where do we draw that line? When is a film not enough or too much? I don't know. In, in this particular film, I enjoy the exercise, let's put it that way. I enjoy the exercise of having to dig a little bit, you know, to talk about it. Yes, there are many films that encourage you to talk about, to interpret certain things. How much of it, we'll see. From what I understand, this isn't a carbon copy of the book. That things, A lot of things have changed in order to make this film. I think I'm, <laughs> the fact that I'm reviewing it, and you know, I'm, obviously I could be reviewing bad films. I, I sometimes do that. I really talk about some really awful films. But I'm pretty sure I'm leaning more towards the I like this film. I like the setup, I like the body of the film, and the ending is, is a little frustrating, it's a little hard to understand, but it's the type of thing that when you do a little bit of the research, and hopefully I can find more about it, because again, there are so many theories out there that make sense, that 
people are able to explain to you what is happening at the end. How exactly is this creature doing whatever the hell it is that it's doing? Why is it doing things to different people? Who exactly is a creature at the end and who's not? You know, there's a lot of things at the end that leave you hanging. And you could go on the internet, like I said, and and, and find a, a lot of very good theories. Very, very good, solid theories. I don't know if you necessarily have to read the book in order to get a better, clear idea. Because the director clearly deviated, from what I understand, from the original text. But I think I'm leaning towards the, I think I like this film. This is a real, very intriguing film. And it's a super heavy sci-fi. That's the part that I like the best is the fact that by them not giving you a clear answer, they go in the sci-fi route of saying, all right, interpret the ending. We have the ultimate interpret the ending kind of film with 2001. You know, up until a certain point in this movie, you kind of are understanding the technology and the mechanics of what the story is happening. You know, what's happening in the story. Who is doing what and what is having an effect on this and that. When you get to the end of 2001, wow, you are out there and good luck. But that is hailed as a groundbreaking sci-fi film, which it is. It's, it's exactly, I think, what it was meant to be. Here you have a similar structure where you can kind of follow the story. You know, it makes logical sense to your average bright individual. You know, you can kind of... Okay, I get it. There's the medical, here's the technology, here's the mission, here's the motivations and stuff like that. When you get to the end, oh boy, let's see what's going on here. (laughs) One of the things I was able to find from the interviews is that Garland explains that one of the biggest things this story about is about self-destruction. And that is about no matter how good your life is or how good your, you know, there are people that are visually a mess. Their lives are a mess. Their actions are a mess. Then there are people that seem to have everything perfect in their lives. And, you know, you would look at them and you're like, I wish I could have a life like so-and-so. But then when you, if you really do, you know, kind of dig deep into the person, you find that they have, just like everybody else, self-destructive tendencies that could completely derail their lives. And some of them are already in that process, but not as far along as the people that you easily recognize as being, you know, completely self-destructive. So with these different women, you you find that that is what is happening. Whatever it is that you're bringing into this mission, whatever your personal demons are, that's how the whole thing affects you. So that is the explanation of what is happening and why it's happening to these people. The question is, you know, can you bring in somebody who is so, who has his shit together so well that they will not be affected by this at all? I, I don't know. <laughs> that's a good question. You know, it, does this thing affect everybody no matter how good you are or how sane you are? Let's say, let's put it that way. The ending is up for interpretation. He's definitely a clone of whatever he used to be because we did see him get destroyed. You know, he does, you know, let that grenade go and he's dead and then a second person is created and that's the person that came she was not she was not turned uh, you know whatever that secondary creature that appeared did not consume her so we don't know what's happening is she willing to give this other person a try because of her guilt in other words does this secondary person represent a way of fixing the mistake she made with her marriage you know He's not aware, I think, I don't think he's aware of, because his memories only go as back as that point. He knows her, but he doesn't seem to have any of the hangups that the other guy had. So is it possible that he 
doesn't know he cheated on him and that's something that is considered to be bad you know for human beings you know for civilized human beings we you know that's a possibility that's one of those things that you talk about is she the same thing that he is now because both their eyes glistened at the same time or are they different well we know she's not exactly the same thing he is but they are kind of connected so maybe that is the mystery of the end of the film is that you have two different people now one of them more human than the other let's say they both look exactly like humans so is this something new has this potential annihilation been contained or do now they become the new thing that's there now and you know what kind of an effect does this extraterrestrial life will have between these two people what if they start having children (laughs) what happens then you know so that's that's kind of how I see it. It is a, it, it's, it's a very, it, you know, there's a lot of questions at the end that what if or what could happen next? It's very, very interesting. And I think, like I said, it took a while to kind of figure it out. They don't really want you, I think, to know exactly how these creatures work. What exactly were we seeing inside the lighthouse? How does one creature lead to the other creature? Those are the type of things that I'm going to continue to look for to see more explanations. And again, they gotta ha- they gotta come from the director because he is the one that's putting this movie together. He's interpreting somebody else's work, and he is the final word on what he meant by this or that. With X Machina, there wasn't that much question because, like I said earlier, it's pretty clear what's going on here. Once you step into that 2001, you know, what the hell is going on stage of the story, that's what's up for interpretation, I think. And, and I'm not sure if he just wants us to interpret that big of a chunk of the film. This is going to be a post type of thing, which I guess yeah, we might start seeing that once the film is on DVD or Blu-ray or 4K or whatever, because usually they don't like to do any deep dives into the meaning of the story until the movie has had its you know run in the theater because obviously they don't want to they don't want people to you know they want people to see the movie i understand that i get it the film had a little bit of controversy before it came out because i believe at the last minute paramount wasn't going to do a lot of marketing for it or the distribution wasn't going to be that big you know something happened that there was question as to you know what exactly you know they were going to do as a matter of fact i believe that the distribution in other parts of the world in some other areas they went straight to netflix instead of going to the movies so there there was a little weirdness going on reviews were pretty good obviously it's not a mega blockbuster hit i think it's making decent money but i am looking forward to what he does next this is a very interesting director he is also a very interesting writer he wrote dread i mean like and he apparently also wrote 28 Days Later. So he's got a, a genre background. He's done some regular stuff too, obviously. But uh, this is his second directorial feature for Alex Garland. And yeah, I'm really interested in seeing what comes next from this director. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. We reviewed both Black Panther and Annihilation. Two different kind of films. Big franchise, tentpole kind of Marvel. Super mega hit. And a smaller thinking man's kind of sci-fi very very deep deep type of film can't wait for the dvds or blu-rays to come out on these especially with annihilation so i can try to dig a little deeper into the meaning of the film and the intentions of the director can't wait to see his future stuff and obviously with marvel more marvel coming in the future and hopefully 
more Black Panther because this is a franchise changing kind of character that we have now been fully introduced. So on behalf of everybody here, thanks for joining us and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. Can you describe its form? No. Start from the beginning. What do you think I do when you're away? You think I'm out in the garden, pining, looking up at the sky? (laughs) Why aren't you here? I gotta leave a day early. Your husband's here. Let me see him. He's extremely ill. You have to tell me where he was, what he was doing. It was his decision to go in. It's something they termed the shimmer. We've sent in drones and teams of people, but nothing comes back. But something has. You're a biologist. You served in the military. If I knew what happened, I could save his life. The boundary's getting bigger, it's expanding. We're talking cities, states. You need to know what's inside. So do I. It's beautiful. Check this out. It's like they're stuck in a continuous mutation. Anything interesting in there? No. Sharks have teeth like that. It's not possible. You can't crossbreed different species. What is it? The soldiers on the last expedition. They went crazy. Or something in here killed them. Something's come through the fence. Through the fence? We have to go back. I can't go back. We can camp here tonight. It's destroying everything. It's not destroying. It's making something new. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long.